morning. Mr. Templer. What do you want? Information. I haven't any. Yes, you have, my pet. You're absolutely bursting with it. Brian Quell is dead. Yes. Yes, I know. Oh. Well, I... I... How do you know? Morning papers aren't out yet. Hasn't been announced on the radio. How do you know Brian Quell is dead? Oh, I telephoned to his hotel. They told me. What hotel? The... I don't remember. Oh, you're very beautiful, but you're a lousy liar. I swear to you, monsieur, I'm not. Look, Olga, all I have to do is wrap you in a coat, bounce you over my shoulder and haul you down to see Inspector Kersey. Oh, monsieur, you would not do that. Why not? He'd be delighted to lock you up in a cell. You're involved in murder. I don't have to remind you that here in France you are guilty until you prove your innocence. So why not make things easier for yourself? Tell me the truth. Now. It was agreed between us that I would do nothing except to bring Monsieur Quell here to my room. Then they would make him telephone to his brother in London. Who killed him? The Welsh one, Jones. To get his brother here? Yes. Why? The brother had invented something of great value, something to do with a, a metal... Oh, I don't know. When does Professor Quell arrive in Paris? This morning. Early, nine o'clock. Monsieur, I swear I had no idea they would do something so terrible. Well, if I were you, I'd take a fast powder. But you don't think I am in danger? Oh, yes, I do. If I were you, I'd uh, go to Cannes or... Nice. Paris is not very healthy at the moment. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. I see you have a device attached to your arm. I haven't gone full cyborg. No, sadly, uh, it is a glucose monitor. Very sexy, sexy glucose monitor. I have gestational diabetes and I refused to do the blood pricking thing because even though I love blood in the movies, I do not like the sight of my own blood as it turns out. So, Ah, the sight of my own blood doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when I go to the lab for a blood test or whatever, and they can't get the vein. Oh, God. Ah, that's that, the worst. Like, that is the worst. At, at one time, I remember saying, just give it to me. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were like, no, well, you're not allowed. <laughs> yeah, it, it does get to that point. I So before they gave me this monitor, when they were testing to see if I had gestational diabetes, they had to do four blood draws within a period of three hours. And by the time the fourth one came around, they could not find a vein. It was, and then I passed out because there was, it was just taking too long. So anyway. Okay. Uh, well, what have you been watching lately? I saw the new Indiana Jones film. I was going to talk about that. That was the one that I was going to talk about. What did you think? Well, I went in with Crystal Skull level expectations and oh man and they were exceeded it exceeded my crystal skull expectations it's interesting that's a low bar it is but some of it is knowing that this was also going to have a sci-fi premise the way that crystal skull did 
and the crystal skull felt so off. Like aliens felt like it was distinctly not part of Indiana Jones's domain of expertise. Like he should never have been there dealing with them. So I was curious how this other sci-fi premise was going to play out. Well, I first of all, all I'm going to say about the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is that I fell asleep. And that's really bad for an Indiana Jones film. <laughs> that's and the one thing they're trying not to do. <laughs> yeah. It's like – so that is the that is the worst. Now, I have done a lot of work in Greece. The plot is based around the Antikythera device, which I've seen. I have photographs of the Antikythera device, the actual one. And I don't know if maybe the Brits pronounce it a different way and that's what they used. But throughout the movie, they call it the Antikythera device device, which is like, I've never heard it called that. So the one word that is said over and over again throughout the whole movie, I'm just sort of wincing every time they say it. Other than that, I think that it was a cool archaeological artifact for them to do, much better than the crystal skulls, which have been debunked as like not actually real, you know, yeah. whereas the Ark of the Covenant and the Antikythera device, those are real objects. Although on the other hand, if you've seen this, what makes this different is like unlike the Cup of Christ, which is a mythical object that no one has ever found, they found this object in real life and now they've just decided that it has special properties. I didn't realize this thing was real. Yeah, it's real. It's real. But it doesn't look like in the movie it's like shiny and new and works. Like this thing was found on a shipwreck and the only reason they know about all the various clockwork gears inside it is it's been x-rayed. Like, you can see the external gears. It's not complete. Spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. Right? Mm. And I think just like in the movie, it's not complete. They have to find both parts of the dial to get it to work. Uh, minor, minor spoiler there. <laughs> I, I see. So so that – so they're the – Finding of the initial half of the object is maybe partially based on truth, but then the, the mythical part is that no one has found the second half. Well, supposed second half. We don't, since we don't know what exactly, like they don't even know what it does, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't know how much bigger it is. We don't know how much was corroded away by the ocean. But it's in the uh, museum in Athens, and it's really worth seeing because. It, yeah, it is this dial clockwork device that predates clockwork as we know it by thousands of years. You know, <laughs> it's a good it's a good starting point then for an indie film, and so that we can avoid other spoilers, I'll just talk about the filmmaking. I immediately had to go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark after seeing this to just sort of measure up. It felt like this fifth film was closer then Crystal Skull to the aesthetics of the original, but there was still something about it that wasn't quite right. And I'm curious your opinion. For me, it was that John Williams' original score sets the pace of the action films in a very particular way that is exciting but not manic. There's enough space in it where you get to pay attention to what's going on. You have There's a little bit of suspense built based on the fact that it's not just constant action. There's pauses or there's a scene where one of the Nazi officers in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark walks into the middle of an alleyway and then this whole group of 
Arab goons come and stand behind him. And it's like a very slow thing that happens in Raiders. And we just don't see that type of action filmmaking anymore. But I think the score really helps tell you what the tempo of the scene is. But I'm curious what you picked up on. What I picked up on is, to me, I think that Disney is very good at looking at something, analyzing it for its parts, and duplicating it and making copies of it. And I think they, they've done that with a – like they're going through all the ethnicities of Disney princesses with the same movie, you know? <laughs> and that's what the Star Wars films, in my opinion – Oh, yeah, are. carbon copies they're, of the original trilogy. So they're, so I think that, that that is what we're getting with this Indiana Jones. It's a paint-by-the-numbers Indiana Jones. It's still not a bad Indiana Jones like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but it's sorely missing a Spielberg at the helm. The thing about Raiders, when I watch it, and it's still like – it still has this magic when I watch it now. It's like – I know what's going to happen because I've seen it so many times, but for a long time, it was like unpredictable. Okay, what's going to happen to Indy next? What's going to happen to Indy next? And I didn't have that kind of unpredictability feeling with this film. It kind of felt like it was on on a course and I kind of knew where it was going the whole way through. I was never like, okay, we're going into left field here. I'm not expecting that. Whereas in the original one where, you know, okay, now he's got to fight this big you know, muscle-bound guy outside the flying wing. Or now, like, they're in Tibet in Marion Ravenwood's bar and, like, Tote shows up with his goons and there's, like, a big gunfight in the bar. And it's like it went from, like, encounter to encounter that was more like the pulp serials that didn't seem this way with this movie. This was more like, okay, we're going to make this action thriller and, you know, it's going to be one story rather than a whole bunch of vignettes like you were reading comic books, you know, <laughs> and that went from what encounter to encounter to encounter. Yeah. Um, and that's what I really liked about Indiana Jones. It's not to say this was not pretty good and entertaining. It's just that it did not have quite – the highs weren't as high, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's inter- it's interesting that you say that because you're, you're right about the sense that Raiders goes from encounter to encounter without really a lot of downtime. I mean, like, there are a few quieter moments, like, you know, when they're hanging out on the balcony talking to Sala or, you know, he and Marion, like, like, there are moments before and after the action scenes that, you know, give you a break, but not as long of a break as in a traditional action thriller where you'll have, like, a whole scene that's them just talking about the plan for the next thing they're going to do for 10 minutes. Yeah. And, and then the plan happens. And there is more of that choppiness to the new one as well. And it was also kind of meant to be the end of the story because you know Harrison Ford is probably not going to do another one. So I was glad to see Sala was back and glad to see Marion was back. But I would have liked to have seen Short Round back like for, yes. like for a final goodbye, you know. Okay, I think we've we talked and we've almost done a podcast on this movie <laughs> that we weren't really like set out to do here. So um, we've already talked about a season three episode, Sabal. This one is from season four. This is uh, season four, episode two, The Abductors. Okay, so just uh, to clarify, we were talking about 
uh, Simon Templer as sort of a rogue scallywag, like, you know, modern day Robin Hood and all of that. And I did a little looking into the character's background because I didn't want to go back and read a bunch of Leslie Charteris novels. And I think something we haven't mentioned, but we probably should, is that Simon Templer is a do-gooder at heart, which is why he's called the saint. And also the saint comes from his initials, S-T. And he would give out his business card or his card that just had that stick figure with the halo wherever he went. And that's why everybody knows him or his reputation. So I thought we should mention that because he's not as much of an anti-hero as we thought. He is pretty much a do-gooder. Which brings us to this one where he's in Paris. This one opens, Templar is in a nightclub in Paris, and there's a man named Quell who recognizes him and asks him, practically insists that he join him. And uh, he claims he's being followed. So there are three men who are after his brother, apparently, who is only referred to at this point as the professor. The opening shot is of this bar, which is like got a Bastille theme and like he's looking through the bars and then it's revealed that it's this nightclub. So having just come back from Paris, <laughs> I wanted to ask you in general, and we'll get into commentary on the whole episode later on, but in general, what was your take on this uh, Paris episode of The Saint? I actually thought that their representation, I mean, granted this was from the 60s and we're now in 2023, but the sense of somewhat exotic but not too unfamiliar feeling of being in a night spot in Paris definitely came through and is still what it's like there at some of the speakeasies that we snuck into or um, the finer restaurants that still have stone walls and like wooden casks of God knows what (laughs) lying around and that that sense of France clinging to its history is definitely still there in the restaurants and nightlife. So so that was pretty cool to see, you know, what the 1960s version looked like. And it makes for a swanky beginning. And the intrigue of someone is being followed is always a good place to start. Okay. So he's not just being followed. He's being followed by three people. And they, <laughs> they immediately get into a brawl outside the club. Simon takes out two of the three. But the third one manages to tail Quell's cab. It's interesting, this idea that the brother who Templar knows from his time in London, that we find out is, you know, a famous metallurgist or <laughs> something like that. Well, the, yeah. <laughs> this is a classic Hitchcock MacGuffin because they want this invention that the professor, his brother, came up with. But we never find out what that is. No. It's just like <laughs> that's not important. It's the fact that they want him, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, meanwhile, there is a Miss Dawson who won a Paris vacation in bingo. She is checked into the same hotel as Quell. And she is played by Annette Andre. And unlike all of our other episodes that we've talked about where it's like a Bond girl. She was not. However, 
Are you sure we haven't seen a character like this in Diamonds Are Forever? I was trying to remember, like, in one of the Bonds where it's set in America. Like, do we get any Oh, she's like, she's very much like a, you know, was it Plenty O'Toole who was, like, in the, um, in Diamonds Are, I think it was Diamonds Are Forever in the casino. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Plenty (laughs) (laughs) O'Toole. You can't see what I'm doing, but, um... So, yeah, there are definitely characters like this. She is like a Bond girl, but she's the only one we've come across so far that I picked out to mention that hasn't been an actual Bond girl. Yes. (laughs) But that doesn't mean she hasn't done a lot. She was in The Saint multiple times. In fact, she even played a Miss Dawson before in The Saint, and I don't know if it's supposed to be the same character or not. She was in three of the biggies from the 1960s. She was in The Avengers, the prisoner and the saint. And she was in the saint like four times or something like that. She was also in the reboots of each of those, the new Avengers, the return of the saint and the second prisoner show. And also another Roger Moore show, the persuaders, which 1971 looks like maybe, maybe it didn't run for very long. She also featured in that. So multiple times with our good friend, Roger. Quell arrives back to a large bill at the hotel desk. He sort of ignores it and heads up to his room, but he's followed by the third guy that's been tailing him, and he's taken hostage. They tell him that they want his brother's metallurgy discovery. <laughs> they refu- want it. They must have it. <laughs> he, he refuses to cooperate and tries to escape, and they kill him. That's a major turn I wasn't expecting. Okay, now he's dead. <laughs> okay. I was going to mention this episode has one of the higher body counts for the Saints episodes we've looked at at like two people. And we'll get to the second death. But it occurred to me when he got killed that actually a lot of the episodes we've watched, we haven't seen a lot of deaths on screen. Like Talented Husband, you know, there are presumably several other wives who have been killed before we meet these characters. But we don't see anyone And I don't know how much of that is a function of British censors. Like, was Mm -hmm. there a cap on how many, like, like you can kill two people in this season. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I have no idea. It did make it feel like this was more Bond-like, you know, a higher stakes story, you know, with a scientist that is going to be captured and global stakes. It definitely felt more in that genre and like you could almost make a feature film out of this plot that they have but they crammed a lot into a short episode yeah so let's keep going with it what happens now is that templar arrives to quell's room i should say the killer is not there anymore and reports the murder templar is there when two gendarmes arrive Templar, in order to hide from them ducks into dawson's room so now we finally have her brought into the main plot. The police start searching room to room and Dawson agrees to hide him in exchange for him livening up her vacation. (laughs) So that's how uh, he gets away from them here. And surprisingly, he's like totally game with her tagging along, like seems to have no problem with this whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) anyway, uh, he escapes the cops here, only to be caught by the detectives in the lobby. Meanwhile, Professor Quell, the metallurgist, is called by the guys who killed his brother, and they tell him 
that he needs to come to Paris to um, take care of the funeral arrangements and things like that. This is where we have a yet another character who comes into this. Olga, who I think is supposed to be a prostitute, although they never explicitly say that. No, but she is that perfect Bond girl archetype, like sort of femme fatale. Like you can tell that she's going to come to her own undoing in some way or another by the men she's mistakenly gotten herself mixed up with. Well, I think there are two Bond archetypes. There is the Dawson type who's innocent and has no idea what's actually, how big and serious a mess she's actually getting herself into. And then there's the Olga type who is actually part of it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He puts the charm on her. Yeah, he does. (laughs) Meanwhile, he calls back to London. The Brits insist that the professor be guarded by, here we go again, the Duchenne Bureau? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Duzième Bureau. When did we last talk about them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when when did they come up? But yeah, we, we talked about them in something else. Was it in a Bond film or what? Oh, no. Don't they show up in um, the Casino Royale um, with Jimmy Bond? Like They do. Uh, that one and the um, the more recent Casino Royale. Yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah. So we got two different things. We've got the metallurgist being guarded by the Duchenne Bureau. Duchenne. Uh, Duchenne Bureau. <laughs> and, uh, and then the Parisian police tailing Templar. The bad guys pull the Duchenne Bureau agent away and kill him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's our second death. Yeah, maybe we get up to three then. I think there's two, like maybe a third. The dynamic between Simon Templar and the French inspectors, I, I'm going to keep harping on this Sherlock Holmes thing, but it has definitely got a little bit of resonance with the Holmes-Lestrade dynamic of like regular police officers jumping to the wrong conclusions, usually thinking that Holmes is somehow involved, like how else could he have already figured out what he's already figured out, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like... They've had it out for Simon Templar, and they're like, this time we got him. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't operate within any legal organization, you know? Yeah, that probably, they don't love that. But there's a great, like, his escape from them is just a classic, look over there. <laughs> <laughs> or under there, rather. Very enjoyable. So he tries to go to the airport to intercept the professor there, but he arrives too late. The bad guys see him and then they go to kill Olga. Again, Templar arrives too late <laughs> to save the person. Classic um, James Bond move, by the way. So, arriving just seconds too late to save the girl. So, well, it's not just the girl. He sa- arrived too late to save Quell. Quell. Too late to save Quell's brother. And now too late to save Olga. Oh, for three. <laughs> So he's stopped by the police, but Dawson continues to tail the murderer until she sees his crashed car. This turns out to be a ruse, and she's captured and taken to, here we go again with these French names, Chateau uh, Bellevue? Chateau Bellevue, I think. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And locked in a dungeon with the professor. Sounds like the beginning of a porn film. Like, <laughs> like we've got all of this grand setup and then things go off the rails. <laughs> all right. 
Templar is caught by the police, but he locks them in the room, Olga's room, yes. right? And then do you remember how they escape? No, I, I remember his like, look under the bed, no further, no further. <laughs> so he locks them in this room, and but they escape by the keys in the lock and they mm. do slide the newspaper under and knock the key out onto the newspaper and pull the... Mm. Now, I bring that up because didn't... Connery's Bond do yes. that in Dr. No? Yes. Yeah, no, that does sound very familiar. <laughs> the old newspaper under the door trick. Yeah. <laughs> Simon makes it to the chateau, frees Quell and Dawson, and locks up the bad guys until the cops arrive. So there we go. That's kind of the story. One of the things I noticed is, unlike Bond, who shoots first, asks questions later, Simon Templer merely incapacitates the guard and, like, drops him in a bush before going to rescue the damsel and the professor. But I was trying to think, like, have we seen Simon Templer kill other people? Like, or is this, like, part of his goody-two-shoes thing, that he doesn't kill people? I don't think it's either of those. I think that it's that he doesn't have a double O. He doesn't have a license to kill. He becomes a homicide suspect as soon as he kills someone. Bond can get away with killing people. You know? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> this ma- this makes more sense. I'm so used to thinking of it in the American perspective of like, well, I went looking for trouble and then it was self-defense. <laughs> yeah. No. No. no do, don't you remember in this very episode, he tells Olga when he's trying to get her to comply with him, this is France. You're guilty till proven innocent. Yes. You know? Yes. That, that, so, that was a memorable line. So I think that that's, that's the main difference. Although I do think that Templar is, at his heart, something of a goody two-shoes. So there is that part of it, too. But the main thing is he just can't kill people, you know? Yeah, and he enjoys being out of prison too much. (laughs) Well, and that he actually seems to have no real ties or responsibilities to anything. And that there is sort of a nice fantasy to that for anybody. I I imagine, especially for men, to, to, like, imagine what how much freedom you could have if you didn't have any loved ones or, like, a real job or, <laughs> like, anything. This is, like, a male fantasy? Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess I, I think my ver- my fantasy versions of this are uh, just slightly different. Like, they, they still involve having close friends that I talk to every day with this level of freedom. And Simon Templer seems to have shaved off additional layers of attachment and responsibility. But... I think he has friends. It's just that we're not watching all of the episodes in a row, which, by the way, um, have you watched any other episodes besides the ones we've talked about on the show? Not uh, fully paying attention. It's more like I start typing up my notes for the episode that we just watched and the other one has already started. Oh, okay. I was just curious because you had mentioned you might be watching some more of them. So I'm I'm going to get to it. It might be a thing that I do with the, the baby when she arrives. We'll have... We'll have nothing better to do than go through all <laughs> all the seasons of Simon Templar. This one was really enjoyable. I I liked the pacing of the plot. It's similarly paced to the other ones, but this one definitely felt more exciting. And having two great female characters or interesting characters was uh, good performances and uh, felt Felt pretty balanced there too. So, can you see here, a how this is this show is a fan favorite among Bond fans, and b why, when faced with having to replace Connery, Roger Moore, 
looked like a really good idea. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's in The Saint. Roger Moore is definitely more like Connery's Bond than he is like Roger Moore's Bond. <laughs> so I I could definitely see them looking at him saying, like, this is the same, like, s- slightly devilishly sly playboy type who's very cool that we would want playing Bond. Roger Moore's Bond, maybe not as cool as Simon Templar, but I could see why they they chose him for the role for sure. Well, we'll talk more about that in a future episode when we uh, talk about Roger Moore's Bond, which we still haven't seen him as Bond yet. So far, we've had three, four Bonds, but we have not had Roger Moore. Who did the most. Who did the most of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, write to us. Uh, you can write to us at letter G, letter C, number eight podcast, gc8podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Also, more than anything, somehow get somebody else to listen to this show. Because right now, I can I can tell when you guys are doing that when you guys aren't doing that. <laughs> so every time I forget to mention it, we don't go up in as, as many numbers. So please do that. If you don't want to do that, an easy thing you can do to help out the show is give us a review on um, – Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off. Here we go again. The Duchem Bureau? Yeah, Duchem Bureau. <laughs> when did we last talk about them? <laughs> <laughs>